0: The Jericho Network on Westwood One.
1: This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And, of course, we have been doing two interviews at a time for the last little bit. But this one, since we are ending at 2018, is going to be a triple threat of some of the greatest guitarists to ever Have walked the earth. But before we get to who's on there, let's get to who's on the phone. Good day, Sir Alan Niven. How are you?
2: I'm very good. Thanks for asking. Apart from the fact I'm smarting from the ignominy of my much beloved local hockey team being bettered by a single ugly goal by a bunch of uh, Canadians uh, yes. from your area. And the ignominy is so bad because, I mean, you know, if an American team with all their money can't beat a Canadian
1: team, we're in trouble. You are. And, and, and the best part of it was texting you every 10 minutes, telling you how much better we were. But uh, but speaking of better, bigger and better. Wait, wait, yes.
0: wait, 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 wait.
2: One second. In case you missed it, there was a point in the second period where you were 10 shots behind my dogs. You had a paltry 18-19 shots, and we had already peppered Price to a 29. And were it not for the fact that you don't have a goalkeeper who is still of an exemplary, an extraordinary ability, you'd have gone down 4-5-1 or five, one last
1: night. But of course, as any coach will tell you, it is uh, the W column that counts, and all the other stuff is just statistics.
2: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and before you crow too much, I will also point out that neither of us are likely to enjoy playoff hockey this year again. So let's 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 get into something cool and something that's fun right. to talk about. Let's. let's
1: let, let's, let's get yeah, over to my do, guests. So let me introduce these guys because they're important. First of yeah, all, we have got. got, got
2: a, you got a real good interview this week.
1: I got three real. Good, ones. I got. One's I got. Three, I got three good ones. I'm telling you. Um, but I got a chance to speak with Peter Frampton in January of 2019 on January 26th at the NAM Awards or at the NAM Show. He will be receiving the prestigious. Les Paul Innovation Award. And of course, uh, that award has been given out in the past to the likes of Slash, Don Was, Todd Rundgren, Pete Townsend, Steve I. Joe Perry, Jackson Brown, and the list goes on and on and on. So we got Pete on the phone and we talk about that. And uh, just after that, we have got Steve Hackett. He is going out on tour. In fact, Steve Hackett is always out on tour. He is doing in 2019 the uh, great Genesis album Selling England by the Pound in its entirety, plus selected other tracks. And uh, just real quick before we uh, we move on to our first discussion, uh, Mitch Ryder uh of course has an album out uh, it was a christmas album so i do apologize it got on uh, after the the season but uh, it is still worth checking out it is it is called christmas take a ride it includes sylvan sylvan of the new york dolls walter lure of johnny thunders and the heartbreakers joe louis walker and brian as we say in quebec Oger, but as you say auger brian auger who has done a whole bunch of stuff in the years anyway so i do apologize for to to mitch this is Mitch apologizing to Mitch for getting the Christmas album on an episode afterwards, but it's just that there were so many good interviews in the last little bit that it's just, it just, it just, it happened. So I do apologize, but it doesn't prevent the folks from going to buy it and check it out. But uh, Peter Frampton, yes.
2: Look at it from a different perspective. You're ahead of the game for next year.
1: Correct. And you know, Christmas right. albums are always in season, so who doesn't yeah, like Christmas and, in July? And,
2: and who still doesn't play um, Phil Spector's Christmas album, which is the original big hit Christmas album? So you're ahead for next year, but, you know... Uh, uh, by the way, I
1: I hear that album is doing great on Cell Block D.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that was cool. Um, and... You know, all all your interviews um, have all got their special quality and I didn't mean to infer that there's a grading system, but um, with Peter, Peter Frampton, um, he's a rare interview and I can say this and journalists can't, but Peter's got a little bit of a reputation of, of not suffering fools easily and not always being the easiest of interviews. So I look forward to everybody hearing your interview because I think it shows that Peter is very smart, very eloquent, very open, and very intelligent, if he's with somebody who can match his intelligence with questions. Yes. But with Peter, if we're going to talk music, we really do have to talk about live records, don't we?
1: We do, because... There are two significant records in his canon of work that have sort of changed the world, you know. If you look at Frampton Comes Alive, and I've always said, and this is my perspective and I, and you have a sort of different perspective, I think. I always thought especially in the early 70s that when you were running out of material or if the record company wanted to get out of a contract or if you wanted to get out of a contract, you would throw a, a live record out there And that was a good way to – and then, of course, Frampton Comes Alive comes out, and it sort of changes stuff. People go, wait a minute, we can re-record our songs and sell X amount a million? And then all of a sudden you see Aerosmith live bootleg and Cheap Trick live at Budokan and then Kiss Alive 2. And and we could go – from 77 to 79, everybody was rushing to put out an album, and I think a lot of it has to come – the credit, goes to Frampton, comes alive. To me, if you had sold 200,000 copies, I'm not sure we see live at Boudacon from Cheap Trick. I'm not sure we see live bootleg from Aerosmith and all the countless other bands that I'm not naming that put out live albums in that sort of three-year span.
2: Well, there's always and obviously a validity to your perceptions, but... Um, I've got a slightly different perspective on it all. Um, and part of it comes from being so ancient and being your particular Methuselah. Um, one of the things that made a difference with Brampton Comes Alive was it sold so well that thereafter, artist lawyers, when negotiating a record contract, would insist that if a live record were to be put out, it's, it counted. Um, prior to that, my best recollection is that most live records did not count as regards the commitment that the artist had to make to the label. So if a label said, we want seven albums or eight albums in six or seven years, they all had to be studio albums. But, of course, the lawyers after Comes Alive would could go in and go, uh, how many million can we sell live? Live albums count. And that's a pragmatic difference, which I think opened the door for bands to um, do live albums, um, whereas they might have been reluctant before because it was basically like giving a freebie to the label. Uh, And labels like freebies. Let me tell
1: you. Of course they do.
2: One of of these days we'll talk about what labels like, and it's horrifying. Um, But in terms of live records, for me personally, and of course, you know, this is just my view of the meadow. um, The first major live record to have impact and to. Really open a door and make a statement's got to be wheels of fire, cream, yes, and that's going going back to nineteen sixty eight and that in my recollection, that was the first live album I had to have, and every party I went to, there was a copy of that at the house where we had the party and
1: wait, nineteen sixty eight uh, actually existed.
2: Yeah, it, oh. <laughs> Nine, pardon, pardon my my French here, but 1968 is probably one of the motherfucker years of history. Um, oh, I can but, imagine. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, and and let let me just skate over these. And if you've got a pencil and paper, and you don't know these records, go check um, them out. I yeah, they're worth checking out. Um, Live Dead had a major impact. On both audience and band. That was the record that really made a mark and started to really dig into a wider audience for them. Um, You know, they came out with Oxo, Working Man's Dead. It was live dead that everybody had to have and everybody did have. You know, in this period of time, I was living in Oxford, England, and, you know, there's a certain uh, youthful intelligentsia in that city. Everybody had a copy of that record. You move on from, and we're 69 now. You move on. The next major impact for a live record has to be Band of Gypsies, Jimi Hendrix, which has a song on it called Machine Gun, which is one of the most brave artistic statements in a, in a political
1: context. Oh, wait, wait, um, wait. A brave artistic statement? I Was Made for Loving You by Kiss 1979. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and now we've gone from the sublime <laughs> to the cornball comic ridiculous. Um, the band banded gypsies. And again, it was the first time that Jimmy had just played in a band where everybody had his pigmentation. So that was interesting too. But of course, we're, we're coming up on two major live watersheds. And the next one, you know, has to be Woodstock. Huge live album. Everybody had two copies of that. And of course, The Who came running back from Woodstock and recorded a thing called Live at Leeds. And in terms of the relevance and the substance of a live record, Live at Leeds, I think, illustrates something absolutely perfectly. The Who in the studio were precise, The Who on stage were something else. And if you want to know what that something else was in terms of energy and drive and unpredictability and being in the moment and stepping off the cliff, Live at Leeds is definitive of that band. And if you only ever own one Who record, go and get Live at Leeds. Well, of course, you've got all these records that are making a mark and selling. So, you see, the doors do absolutely The Stones do get your ya-ya's out. Next major, major live record is Four Way Street. And I don't think many people understand that Four Way Street is what you'd expect from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young on the one hand. But the second album in in this double live uh, set is some of the most storming guitar playing by Crosby and Stills. And a total rocking album and right in the wheelbox box of, of where we're going and what we're talking about, because after four way street came the Allman brothers live at the Fillmore, which is probably their high point of anything being released. And then of course we come to rock in the Fillmore with Peter
0: and, and his pie. band
2: and humble pie. So you can see where Peter and his management were part of a development, um, And a a very valid one, because, you know, here's another concept that probably doesn't make much sense in the contemporary moment. But bands back in, in that time were often better on stage than they were in the studio. And the producer's greatest responsibility was to try and catch what the band was live and put it in a recorded context be at a studio where it's basically be smart, just go down there and, and mic, them up or mic them up live. But you know, we, we have a time now where we have performances by engineers. And the most important thing as regards talent is to have a vacant f- face and a fat ass as far as I can see. But once upon a time, bands could actually go out there and really play to the point where they were better on stage Than they were in the studio.
1: Yes, and And... nobody exemplifies that better than Kiss and Kiss Alive.
2: Kiss and Kiss Alive. Oh my God, we've gone back to the ridiculous when I've been talking about The Sublime. Um, How much does Gene pay you?
1: Well, enough. Uh, But it is the greatest live album followed closely, I admit closely, by Scorpion's Tokyo Tapes, which is just slightly ahead of Kiss Alive 2. So we have Kiss Alive... Tokyo tapes, Kiss Alive two, and then we have just a whole bunch of other stuff. Well, okay, well, there are, Live at there Budokan, are, Cheap Trick can be fourth, but then a whole bunch of other stuff.
2: There are certain there are certainly live albums that are beyond valid, that they're magical, and right. you know I'd say Cheap Trick's Budokan, Santana, Lotus, um, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, in the studio, had a little bit of Red Light Fever. Listen to his Carnegie hall live. Live, live, live that's when you understand stevie ray Vaughan. and in my own little world i would have no problem at all of saying great white stage is definitive that is the band absolutely at their best
1: I-, I thought it was the 2018 touring version that was the best great white ever oh easy there now <laughs> All right. Listen, Well, we, let's take this back up on the other side here because folks want to hear Peter Frampton. We're 15, almost 16 minutes in, and there's no Peter. Oh, wow. So let's give them Peter, or as we say up here, Pierre. Uh, yeah, and, I, and I'll Peter out. Yes, Peter out. Let's listen to Peter. Here is the one, the uh, only and exceptionally affable uh peter frampton we are speaking with the one and only guitarist peter frampton he is going to be receiving the les paul innovation award at the 34th annual nam convention coming up in january and i'm going to say mr frampton because i have an incredible amount of respect for you so mr frampton an absolute pleasure to talk to you today well thank
3: you and and can
1: can you now call me peter Yes, let's let's go okay. to Peter, <laughs> please. Let, <laughs> Thank you. Let, let's go to Peter. But let let's talk about this Les Paul Innovation Award because it's not given out willy-nilly to a whole bunch of people just because they're there. It really has a purpose and a meaning. Um, tell me about receiving that award and 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 being considered an innovator.
3: Well, um, obviously, first of all, I'm totally honored. wow well, it was a a big surprise, um, because I see, you know, there's Paul McCartney, Pete Townsend, Slash, uh, Jackson Brown, all these
0: uh,
3: amazing, uh, uh, legendary acts that I'm huge fans of and, and admire. So first of all, it, it's a complete um, honor to, to receive this. Um, and I think the, the main thing uh, about me and Les, the connection would be, well, first of all, I I got to know him, so a little anyway, and over the years. And he was always uh, a a really down-to-earth person, lovely character. And, of course, uh, I'm in the presence of genius. when That's what I regard Les as. And um, because not only did he... Um, you know, pretty much invent okay so leo Leo Fender was out the west coast, he was on the east coast and but he he may he came up with the log, the very first electric that then I believe Epiphone and Gibson got involved in, and uh, you know what am I known for playing A les paul so uh, <laughs> that's that 's pretty incredible right there so um but also um his um, uh, mind was such that when recording, um, he he needed more control over what he was doing, and uh, asked Ampex to to you know come up with an eight track simultaneous you know so that you could overdub basically sound on sound but on separate tracks. And that was absolutely brand spanking new at that point. No one had done that before. So uh, as well as his guitar playing, um, uh, his music with him and his wife that I, I've admired and learned from, um, you know, he, he invented so much stuff that we use today and uh, still, you know, and set us on a course. There would be no Sergeant Pepper. Um, beatles album if it weren 't for uh, for multi track recording and that 's what what uh, uh, what I think that he made the biggest difference in and then microphone placing it could, the list just goes on and on and on and and uh, before I met long before I met him um, um, when I was eight or nine years old, uh, my parents bought me a, a reel-to-reel recorder, tape recorder, because I wanted to start recording my own music. And uh, and then it dawned on me one day, without knowing anything about sound on sound, um, that if I got another one, a separate recorder, and I put it next to the other one, um, I could put the microphone in such a place that if I put... A rhythm guitar down on the first tape recorder. I could play that back and add a lead part um, and pick it up both from the speaker and the microphone onto this and combine them onto the second one, um, which was a very um, ineffective way of sound on sound. But um, I also, uh, at the same time, took my father's uh, radio valve, uh, tube, uh, radio from the living room, big, big old thing. And he had, he had made a, um, uh, an extension speaker to go into the dining room so we could all hear the radio, no TV yet. And, um, so I ripped that off the wall, <laughs> that speaker, because I needed some echo. And so again, unbeknownst to how you do echo, I put, um, a microphone in one at one end of the bath, and I put this speaker on the windowsill, and I because I knew that the sound in the bathroom was the perfect echo for what I wanted to do on guitar. So I fed my guitar sound. I don't know how I could could have known how to do this, but I did, and I made my own echo chamber. And when I one of the first times I met uh, Les. I said I got to tell you I said that when I was very young I used to, I found the best place for echo uh was the bathroom so I took over that and um and put a speaker in him. You know, I told him what I did, and he said, "Yep, I used to stick Mary in the in the bathroom all the time for good vocal sounds." So, <laughs> so we were up on the same path. He just took it a little further than I did, but um, and, and that's why I've always been as as long as I've been a um, a guitar player, I've been a technician and an engineer because I've always been techie. And, um, so I guess, um, that's my, that would be my best link to, to, uh, to Les, Paul, Uh, other people would probably say the innovation of the talk box, but that's not really, that's not fair because I wasn't, um, the first person to come up with that or use it. Um, there's always someone before you on everything. And, um, so uh, it was actually invented something very similar in the forties, I think, so i 'm just um better known for it um, but again i i um, i uh, I took a gadget that um I thought was very unique, and um I loved the sound of it because i 'd heard those sort of sounds on the radio over the years. radios would do their call signs. Through gadgets like that, and uh, so when I actually found a talk box or saw one, someone using one, it was like a eureka moment for me, you know. And uh, the
1: rest, as they
3: say, is history with that box.
1: It, it really is. So, what at this stage in your career sort of keeps you excited? And I mean, do you still have that? <laughs> and I mean this in the, in the, in the best way possible, but you still have that sort of childlike exuberance to discover and tinker and do stuff. Or are you at the point now where you sort of done it all, you've seen it all, you know how it works and, and it's just, well, it's another day in the studio. I mean, do you still have that, that, that de- childlike desire to, to still? Yes. Okay.
3: Yes, I do. And I think, you know, passion for what you do. Um, I always used to think, well, one day the passion's going to die and, and it reinvents itself, that's what happens, because something will come along and, and oh my god, like what can I do with this? You know. So I, I own my own studio in Nashville and and I've always had a studio of some sort, whether it be in my house or a separate building, but this is the first time I've owned a, a professional studio, um commercial studio. And um uh so I'm always we're tinkering with it right now. So upgrading this, doing that, getting new equipment in here, whatever. Um, and I'm recording about three projects at the same time. So, um, no, it never goes away. The passion still still remains. And like I said, something can just light it up um, in a moment's notice. And, uh, I, you know, I'm a gadget freak. What can I say?
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and it's great now on the last run on the last press run or or the tour with steve miller you had mentioned the possibility to different media outlets that you might go back in the studio and record a new album first of all is is that still a possibility and uh, is it important for you at this point to make a new album or or what what is sort of the that that meaning for it because you could essentially just do a tour do your 15 greatest hits give 75 minutes and say thank you very much um what keeps the passion about making new music and 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 understand me when i say why bother i'm I'm just asking the question i'm not trying to be (laughs) Yeah,
3: i understand totally um uh you know someone said um you know uh billy joel um hasn't written a new song or recorded a new album in however many years and, you know, he's got it right that he should just do that. Well, that's fine for him because maybe he does, maybe he said all he wants to say and it's a personal thing um, with um, uh, someone, uh, a creative person if they, you know, who wants to put out something that themselves, they themselves don't even find, you know, uh, admirable. You know, so uh, the last thing I would want someone who wasn't wasn't feeling it would be to put something new out. But I still feel it. it's like if I don't write something, even if it's eight bars um, of melody or or, or chords or uh, something a day, um, I think there's something wrong. Um, it's just. I've always got to do something new, something that I, and it's not even, I'm not trying to prove anything. It's just that what I, I know I get so much pleasure out of it. And I know most of what I'm, what I come up with, will might never make itself into a finished piece of music. But when I do come up with a finished piece of music, it's because of all those, all the work I've been doing every day, just, you know, um, People say if you want to be a good writer, write. You know, and it's the same with a musician. If you want to be a good musician, you've got to play. And I don't. St- I haven't stopped. You know, and uh, right. I couldn't unless I'm physically incapable. Um, I will. <laughs> I'll be writing whether it be you know on guitar, piano, or whatever.
1: Now you just mentioned that some of the stuff might not make it out because some of it is just pure inspiration. But the yeah. stuff that is meant to be put out for, for example, a new Peter Frampton album, what's the writing process there? Do you look back and say, OK, on when to change I, uh, I, I did this and on or is it just no, I'm just going to write songs and my fans are going to like it or they're not. It's It's about me now. It's not about AOR or radio. I mean, how do you sort of approach it? Is it is it commercial intent or is it artistic intent?
3: I've never, I've never thought to be or set about to be commercial um, uh, ever in my career. It's always been, I like that song or I like that piece that I've written, and maybe that should be something we should make as a, a single. Never knowing, I don't think anybody really knows what's a hit record, or especially back then. Um, you know, who knows? And there's a whole other lot of stuff that has to go on around that to make sure people can hear it. So it becomes a, uh, becomes a hit. So no, I've, I've never, I've never written with any. Okay. Um, what do they want? Kind of thing. Maybe a short period in the eighties when things weren't looking so good for me. Um, I, I started thinking, well, maybe what, what do people want? And then I thought, no, it's what I want, the artist, you know, I mean, if I don't like it, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, what chance do I have of other people liking it? You know, I I've never followed a fad, um, uh, been talked into doing something that wasn't actually me or that I felt a part of. So it's, it's all down to, um, whatever I come up with that I feel is good, you know, right. it's, it's, it's not, it's not for any other person. If they like it, that's fine. Um, but I like it anyway.
1: Yeah. And that, and that makes sense. Um, just real quick. Let, let me talk about the first album, Wind of Change. You do the herd, you do Humble Pie, you've great success with Humble Pie and Steve Marriott and the whole thing. Talk to me about that decision to go out alone put peter Frampton on on the marquee uh self-produce it and say listen i can't even blame anybody if this doesn't work it's this is all was that a difficult decision was it a a necessary decision was it the i mean was how do you sort of look at that time where you just said i'm not a band guy I, i gotta be peter
3: well i had been and and i still am a band guy um Uh, you know, uh, but I think having been in the, well, bands before the herd, then the herd, my first professional band, and then humble pie, humble pie was an, um, uh, an incredible learning curve for me because you got Steve Marriott and myself, Greg Ridley and Jerry Shirley, um, and you know, spooky tooth, small faces and the herd and Jerry's band. Um, and, um, So it it was a powerful um, foursome, and um, but I learned so much from Steve Marriott um, and what he, how he put, what, how much he put into his craft, and uh, he was a very big proponent of me, the guitar player, and that's why he wanted to play with me, Um, and that's why we formed Humble Pie together. Um, but, um, I've kind of lost the, what was the question?
1: <laughs> well, just about, about that decision to go out there. Oh, the decision to leave, yes. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I just, I'll, I'll add an aside. I just saw Rick Wills about two weeks ago at the Mohegan Sun. I was at the Foreigner Reunion, and what a great guy. Mm-hmm. What a great, anyway. But, yeah, but talk about, I mean, you know, you, you, you just said, "Hey, I'm going to go be Peter, and I'm going to produce yep. it myself." So you can't say, "Well, Bob Ezrin screwed this up," or, or you know, you, no. If it, it, it's you, was that? Well, the the reason was that I knew I wanted
3: to go to uh, to start out on my own at that point because Humble Pie's direction had kind of narrowed, um, and we weren't doing soup to nuts anymore. We were just doing nuts. and uh and it was fine because we were great at nuts um you know full-on and um and i enjoyed every single moment of playing with humble pie it did amazing things for my guitar playing my learning of of how to deal with an audience uh it it was uh it was an apprenticeship to say the least uh but it, it got to the point where we recorded uh rock in the film more. And I was the guy that mixed it, most of it with, uh, with Eddie Kramer. Again, the tech guy comes out and, um, basically, um, realized that, you know, um, this was going to be a success. We knew it was going to be a success. We had a feeling it was going to be a success. We didn't know it was going to be our first gold album, but we knew, uh, Humble Pies first called out but we knew it would sell pretty well because our audience was, was bigger than our record sales until we put that record out. So I thought, well, I better leave now before they get too big and I won't be able to get out. And, um, so they all thought I was nuts management and band. Um, and, um, but that was it. I, 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 I left and, um, felt bad about it because I knew they didn't want me to leave, um, but I knew that I needed to go out and and do something on my own and uh, which was I guess a very brave move at the time i didn 't think of it as, as anything but what I needed to do for me to, to uh, for my creativity.
1: Well, it certainly, it certainly paid out, and, I'm, and I know we're running out of time, so I'll just ask you these two questions. Performance Rocking, The Fillmore, and of course, Franton Comes Alive, the, the, two of the greatest live albums ever put out. Um, talk to me a little bit about, about putting out live albums, because at the time, live albums, at least my perception from those days, was that they were throwaways, they were a way to finish off a record contract, they were a way to, and yet... If you don't have these two in your catalog, maybe things are very different for you. This, in, you know, in 2018, 2019. So, yes. Talk to me about those two albums and putting out live albums. And were they? I mean, did you? Were they just meant to be throwaways? And whoops! Suddenly, whoa! We, no. We, okay. No. You see, uh,
3: the one thing, D. Anthony Management. Um, uh, knew was he, he'd had success um, just before that with with a live album with Jay Giles I believe and um, a, he had been in the business a long time and he could read the, the what the audience uh, the way it was going as far as venues uh, the audience at venues and stuff like that and we had Humble Pie had done four uh, studio albums right. and rock on was the fourth one and it was making some noise uh not a lot <laughs> but it was starting to make some noise so we figured he said i think you should do a live record it worked for Jake giles and put them on the map and um what do you think and i i i we all thought it was a great idea because we knew how good we were live um and there was no no worries about it being good. So that's when we, we went and uh, uh, decided finally to do that. Um, it was never thought of as a throwaway um, because um, it was actually meant to be the grabber album, you know, of all those shows that Humble Pie had done over a year and a half maybe, um, supporting you you name it, we were there, um, and grabbing fans along the way. And then we put out this thing that is basically the stage act that what everyone's been listening to, and they went for it. You know, uh, it's something they know. They've been to see it. They want to hear it. Um, and, in fact, I think uh, I followed the same path um, I had for... <laughs> Uh, solo studio albums and the fourth one was starting to make some noise, Frampton. And um, I don't think we actually said the word. We just said, let's do it now. You know, and we knew what that meant. You know, it was like it worked with Humble Pie. It was the same management team and agency and record company. And we all said, let's, let's, it worked once, let's try it again. And um, that's, and I knew that there were no worries because my band was always great live um and so again it was never meant as a throwaway album in fact i'm not sure if it's uh rockin the Fillmore or if it's frampton comes alive i'm thinking it was more likely frampton comes alive actually changed uh con- record contracts to oh, make absolutely. live albums live albums be be uh counted as one of your, if you had two albums a year for eight, you know, for four, four years, that was so that you could have a live album as, and in my contract, you couldn't, that was the ninth album, as it were. So they, they actually changed the law and made it so that it was counted as one of my albums.
1: Yeah, and and Frampton, Frampton comes alive changed sort of the course of music because then after that you know there was more Kiss albums and Cheap Trick and and all these bands started doing the alive version and the mm-hmm. um, I know we've run out of time so if if I may one last question and then if that's okay that's okay. Okay, good. So um, you've said over the years, uh, at times, that Humble Pie was sort of two separate bands. There was the studio band, and then there was the live band, and they were sort of somewhat different, even though they were the same beast. Talk to me a little bit about that, but also, is that sort of how you saw Frampton as well? Like Your studio albums being very different than what you are on stage. Is Peter Frampton sort of two separate beasts and that you have to understand one to see the other, or... Do you know what I mean? Yes, I can can be. I can be. I I mean, I I viewed um, Humble
3: Pie as uh, similar to The Who in as much as The Who make exquisite or made, um, don't know whether they're still making them, but made exquisite studio albums, but they were very clean and... um, well produced, uh, they used, I mean, Glenn Johns and every, I mean, amazing um, engineering of producing, but nothing, com- uh, nothing um, could let you believe what you were going to see live from a Who record. You know, it was, um, it's like World War Three. You know, <laughs> it was, it was um, the the energy the energy of the who was on stage was completely different from from on on record humble pie was that and i think it's because certain acts are studio performers very well and they and they but they aren't such good live performers and there's such acts um like the who and and humble pie and possibly myself who Who do great both sides, but you can't not go and see them live <laughs> you know it, it's that that's where they're in their their that's their forte you
1: know is playing live no, I agree and and there are so many bands I think that that fall into that you know a child of the seventies and eighties when you look at Kiss and Aerosmith and Cheap Trigger, you hear the albums and you go, well, that's a little you know static and then you see them live and you go, "Oh." Okay, now I get it. Right. Uh, Peter, absolute, absolute pleasure. I know we've gone five minutes over, so thank you for that. That's okay, man. And uh, I will wish John uh, Regan your best as well, and uh, thank you for today.
3: All right, thank
1: you. I appreciate it. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
3: You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk.
0: Hey, this is Frank Hannon, Tesla's lead guitarist. Be sure to visit my website, Frankiehannon.com, to check out my latest solo album. And keep on listening to Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Crank it up.
1: Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. And a very big thank you to Peter Frampton. Absolute, absolute great chat. And I have to say... um, you know, sometimes on Facebook or on Twitter, I'll say, hey, I'm going to interview so-and-so tomorrow. And I did that with Peter, and I did that with George Thoroughgood and I did that with a couple others. And I had people who – interviewers, you know, professionals – write in and say, oh, Peter is so moody. Oh, George Thoroughgood is so difficult. And for me, they were both great interviews over the years. And, and Peter – there was nothing wrong with Peter. He was perfectly, perfectly fine. So – I think if you ask the proper questions, you will get the proper response. Um, you know.
2: uh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, kudos for doing that. You know, yeah. can, you, can you imagine someone like Frampton, how many times he's been asked dumbass questions?
1: Well, always, I mean, tell me about the talk box. Tell me about Show Me The Way. Tell me about Frampton Comes Alive. And it's just like, yeah. oh, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, te- it's tedious. Oh, it is, especially I I mean when did that come out? 76. So, yeah, 42 uh-huh. years of yes, it was a great moment. No, we didn't do studio overdubs. Yes, it was um yeah. You, know, exactly. uh, uh, you know. Um and, and of course, and of course we were talking about live albums before we got to Peter and uh, my favorite are uh bands that put out live albums that were actually recorded in studios. I mean, just the lies that some people have to go through to put out product is is unbelievable, but um
2: well, I heard this rumor that KISS used to have to hire session musicians for all their recordings, but I I think that that's just somebody trying to take Mickey out of KISS. Why would anybody want to do
1: that? Listen, the great thing <laughs> – KISS is not a band. KISS is a concept, and they have had – Probably 87 musicians play on all their different albums over the years, including the guy from Mr. Mr. Richard Page, including uh uh, 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 Dick Wagner, including uh, God, Jean Beauvoir, uh, Mitch Weissman, uh, you know, Bob Kulick that, that was a guest last week. So, but I'm pretty sure, and I maybe. Maybe they're still hiding it, but I'm pretty sure Steve Hackett has not played on a KISS record. So so let's get no, over to uh, –
0: and,
2: and, and to quickly close this, that is KISS is a concept spelt with a K, right?
1: Of course, just like the cruise. <laughs>
2: well, and let's K. get to Steve Hackett who doesn't have two Ks in the middle of his name.
1: No, he's only got one. And uh, by the <laughs> way, I, I just threw out the word KISS cake. That would be delicious. <laughs> With a K, actually, cake would have two K's. I guess it would be K A K. Oh, you know, Gene's gonna listen to this and he's gonna start selling kiss cakes, and I'm not gonna get a cut. That's that's not right. He's gonna oh, be selling. No. He's he gonna be selling count, cake he will by not the pound. The cake for you. No, he's gonna be selling. He's gonna be selling cake by the pound, and I'm not gonna get any of it. Anyway, uh, Steve Ing, uh, Steve England, Steve England. Yes, he's my new favorite guy. No, Steve Hackett, Genesis Revisited Tour 2019, selling England by the pound the entire album, plus uh, other highlights, and so on and so forth. Uh, Sir, you were around when that album was actually fresh and new in the stores. Um, What was it like picking that up and ripping off the cellophane?
2: I I didn't. Um, I will confess that, for me, uh, they were far too white, far too English public school, and at that period of time, I... if something came from America, I was full of curiosity. Um, If it came from an English public school, I rolled my eyes and said, as if, where's the street cred there? Um, So I didn't, and um, I wasn't much of a Genesis fan at all, although I became a huge fan of Peter Gabriel when he went solo. I thought the records that he made, the first four records that Peter Gabriel made were Utterly essential. Listening, he was fantastic to go and see live, and that's when I got the Genesis bug. Was when there was no Genesis; it was just Peter.
1: What we what we know is that Genesis, in somewhere around eighty six, put out an album called Invisible Touch. Absolutely brilliant.
2: They came up with some good singles and videos and so on and so forth. But I would I would say that if we're going to talk about the essential, yeah, the first three albums, maybe four albums, that Peter Gabriel made on his own uh, were incredibly full of insight and commentary and social passion. Um, if you don't know those records, go and get them. Avoid buying um, Einar Deutsch's album, which I think was his third album recorded in German. It is utterly Terrifying, and if you've got any whisper paranoia within you, it will bring it out. Um, <laughs> but Steve Hackett, good guitar player. Um, yeah. But I have to say, it, you know, at that period of time when I was a nipper, uh, I was completely besotted with American guitar players. Um, one one thing I did find interesting is that Steve acknowledges being influenced by Robert Fripp. And Robert Fripp, I think, is one of the very interesting English guitar players. Very white, very English, very intellectual, but intriguing.
1: Yeah, very intriguing. And you're going to love what I'm going to do now. I am going to somehow connect this to KISS. So watch watch this. Selling England by the Pound. Follow the flow chart. It's very important. Selling England by the Pound came out on Charisma Records. Follow the flowchart. Charisma is a song on Kiss's 1979 album, Dynasty, which, of course, included I Was Made for Loving You, which we talked about earlier as being one of the greatest songs or musical whatever we said. And so there we go. We have now made this all about Kiss again. Thank you very much. I hear the audience applauding. I will take a bow. You're welcome. Uh, the, the,
2: the flowchart.
1: Uh, that's possibly right. That's that, a big word.
2: I think that's possibly an excessive description. I would call it a stretch. And at your age, I'd say be careful how quickly you stretch and what you stretch because you may pop a
1: joint. And it might become, it might, it might stretch its way into being a, a, a precursor to senility. So, hey, uh, but here we are uh, Steve Hackett selling England by the pound. The tour is going to be in Montreal in September. ...of 2019, but in other territories, very, very shortly, here is the one, the only, and yes, let's do this in French again, Le Seul et Unique... Steve Hackett. We are speaking with guitarist Steve Hackett. The new tour is selling English by the pound. Um, it is coming to Canada. It's part of the, I guess, uh, Genesis Revisited series. Is, is that correct to say it's part of the Genesis Revisited series? Oh yeah.
4: Yeah, we do the whole of Selling England and probably most of Spectral Mornings, plus some new stuff as well. So it's, it's partly Genesis, a big part of Genesis, of course. So, you know, uh, in an attempt to address both both the past and and uh the present, so you know we, we there 's a lot of things involved with the show
1: so I know you 've done a few of these shows overseas, but let 's uh, talk to me about this tour and and putting together an album tour. Do you sort of go back to You know, 19, whatever, uh, what was it, 73, 73. right? 73
4: was the year, yeah. 45
1: years. Do you go back to that album and just say, okay, we're going to do the exact copy, or do you think I need to improve on it? or What can fans expect from this show?
4: Well, um, up to now, what I've done is I've cherry-picked across all of the Genesis canon, and uh, I've chosen what I thought were the best things from each album but uh, but this time we're going to do the album in its entirety, selling England by the pound nineteen seventy three um <clears throat> we were doing that album when we were first touring that side of the pond and um John Lennon gave an interview and said that uh, we were one of the bands that he was listening to, so I guess he must have heard something of of that album and um I'm very proud of it still um to go back to it um I think that tribute bands tend to try and copy the exact album. Um, what I tend to do is, um, I'll play the notes for sure, and it and it needs to be authentic. Uh, but um, I might extend a solo here and there, and uh, develop things in in a way. In a way, um, when we were a band, Genesis, when when it was five of us. We tend to change things and develop them. And so it, in a sense, it's it's the same thing. You, you honor the past, but you don't slavishly do every single note and wear exactly the same trousers and I'm not looking for the bat wings and all of that. So it's an update in a way, an expansion of what it was in the first place.
1: You have recently done these... Um... Genesis Revisited shows with with orchestra is that something yep. that okay is that something that that we will be seeing over here with the selling England by the pound or is it, or not
4: Uh well uh, the thing is uh, when we were in um in Buffalo we we worked with the Buffalo Symphony uh, uh, actually it was a Buffalo Philharmonic but um uh, this time it's going to be group uh i did i did this tour in in england did eight dates which sold out with orchestra which went very very well so at some point um i would like to do it with orchestra over there but you know it might be select dates you know what i mean it's it's that thing where proco haram for instance did the thing with i think the edmonton orchestra and i was talking to gary brooker about all of that you try and include it where you can but but for a band that were basically a combination of an orchestra and a choir in the first place, plus technology makes it easier to have, you know, better samples with things and have not just Mellotron but Mellotron plus. Um, it's uh, I like to think it's it's a kind of enlargement, as I say, or a kind of embellishment of uh, of what we did first of all, but this time, no orchestra this time, no no promises about that, but uh, but I still think it'll be, it'll be a great show.
1: It absolutely will be. So, so let's go back because I really want to focus on the album and, and it's, 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 it's Genesis, if I can say that, but you, you come off of Foxtrot, you, you tour extensively, and then there's this period between the end of the tour and the end of that album cycle, the live album comes out. Um, Where were you musically? Because there was getting this modicum of success. You were getting a little bit of radio play. But here you are in this environment where some of your peers, Black Sabbath, are doing heavy metal. Led Zeppelin are doing this incredibly hard rock. We've just finished the the era of the Beatles. And and the Stones, of course, are still going strong. And and in fact, they're still going strong now, which is still remarkable. Um, Musically, when you sat down for Selling English by the Pound, do you sit down and say, okay, we just need to be Genesis, or do you think, okay, well, we need to get on, on AM radio? What was sort of the, the, the thought process going into it?
4: Well, I think we were doing Just What the Hell We Liked. Um, apart from that, we had a hit single, our first hit single, which was, I Know What I Like, from the album, Selling England by the Pound. Um, and uh, it was it was an extraordinary time And I think that there was some kind of development that happened, not just as writers, but as players. So, you know, right from the word go, you've got a track that owes its introduction to Scottish plain song, then something Elgarian, Edward Elgar, something anthemic. And then it goes... um, I suppose the best way to describe it would be something that's a cross between psychedelic and fusion and collision, which is a present term. Um, all of those things, um, it gets mixed up. But um, some of the playing is, is fast and furious. So um, I think we were giving the jazzers a run for their money with that. But at the same time, we had classical people listening to us and um, and no less than the Distinguished Beatle. So... Um, uh, it was a very exciting time indeed, and I felt that I was playing guitar uh, in the best band in the world at that time, even though we were just basically doing clubs. Um, we were finding it very, very hard uh, to fit in shows, you know. Uh, we basically took everything everything we could from, from college appearances to clubs, um, very occasionally a theatre, but it was a slow growth.
1: You said, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say quite proudly that you had that single, I Know What I Like. Um, How important was it for the band to have, I mean, financially having a single is great, but how important artistically was it for the band to have singles? And Were you chasing singles? Was it like, oh, my God, we we, we hit top ten, yay? Or was it like, oh, okay, well, that was nice. Well, at that time, you know,
4: singles were a bit of a dirty word. Um, uh, Most bands felt that um, if they appeared on the English show Top of the Pops, um, there were fans who said, we'll never speak to you again. I mean, you have to remember that from the era of um, uh, uh, Zeppelin, you know, had never had a single and uh, and uh, you know that was um that was a kind of badge of courage you know this this this, this thing you know nailing your colours to the mast and saying no we're an albums band we don't compromise what you get is the real thing it's it's undiluted um the idea of trying to encapsulate it um i think it was the, the idea of the live show is basically everything and um so we were from the era of bands who did you know precious few overdubs to be honest we tried to do as much as we could live and that's indeed what you get on much of that album
1: Uh, talk to me about the importance of the live show because you look at some bands and and i will reference kiss in this one where critics have certainly said that the live show masks Um, musical missteps or or, or overshadows the musical ability and they sort of hide behind that. I personally like KISS Uh, but how important was it for the show to get the music across and was it ever frustrating to you to say well hey wait a minute, shouldn't the music be first? So how did you sort of balance this showmanship with hey we're we're, we're not actors we're musicians? Well Uh, you
4: have to remember the era that it, that it was in, um, you know, you could, you could mount the stage anywhere, uh, from, you know, 1971, you know, bands were not actually carrying their own light shows. Um, you know, it was the exception rather than the rule. Um, But I knew, uh, and Peter Gabriel knew that, um, that if we didn't have our own light show, we couldn't control the environment. And we wouldn't have the ability to sound like an orchestra one minute and a rock band at the next and be able to turn on a dime and mix all of those things. Uh, so, yes, live shows were were very important. In fact, people used to say, um, you know, you're much better live than you are on record. And that was a source of, of great frustration. But then. I think any band that comes across with um a certain amount of power you've got volume on your side I mean the guys are performing live in front of you uh, when it's working of course it's um it's never going to be the same you know watching a a live race on 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 TV seeing seeing people in the act and doing it um it's it's got to be it's got to be more interesting you're in the moment for 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 a start um, so, those live shows were terribly important and we we had um a lead singer who realized at that point that he needed to really depict the action and and live the songs and so, as many of the extremely obscure lyrics and you know very English stuff um he was personifying that he he was dressing up like the coin like Britannia on the coin for the start of of dancing with the moonlit night. So when he sings the immortal words, can you tell me where my my country lies? Um, uh, he's he's doing that. And it's like a kind of vignette. I mean, in a way, it's, it's a set piece. It's a little bit like, like Bowie um, at that time when he was up and coming and people started to use the term uh, theatrical rock. Um, for the rest of us, we were playing the notes, so we were sitting down um, like like an orchestra. We were sitting down, and you've got this, you know, one lone um, master of ceremonies, and, um, and like a dancer, um, I think, you know, he was, uh, uh, Nijinsky um uh, but you know, it's it's that 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 kind of thing that it was uh, um, extraordinary. Uh, it's it, in many ways, I, I think it was you know very much the best of the band, which is why these shows um, are already selling out, and it looks like we're doing another another one in Montreal, which will be great. Uh, so you know, things seem to be going like hotcakes, which is marvelous all over again. So um, yeah, it feels wonderful to reapproach it.
1: Fans fans love it. I mean, it is it is a classic, classic album. But but you mentioned, and, and I want to take you up on that, because as a fan, I have yep. felt that my, uh, myself. You said that fans were coming to you and saying that you're better live than you're on record. And listen, yep. I, I have felt that for Black Sabbath. I have felt that for Kiss. I have felt that for Metallica. I have felt that for many bands. And you did say it was a frustration was there a conscious effort to to change the recording method and and maybe try to record albums in a lo- live or kind of way like how did you sort of say okay how are we going to get this on this stage onto that piece of vinyl well
4: it's it's one of the things that's interesting is that genesis live the first live album um there's a version on there of for instance uh water of the skies which you we used to open the show with and of course from the opening strains of the Mellotron, you get the big cheer from the crowd, and it's part of it. You know, the crowd was so so with us, and um, it happens to have a really great drum sound on it, you, and you can tell it's live. And although, of course, um, we were doing something for the King Biscuit Flower Hour, and so we weren't nervously recording ourselves thinking oh, you know, this is the be-all and end-all. And that thing was put out as a kind of stopgap because we were doing a lot of shows and um, we didn't have time to be able to go into the studio and be able to do the, do the follow-up to, to Foxtrot. So what you had was the best of Foxtrot and the best of um, uh, uh, Nursery Crime uh, before we did Selling England by the Pound. So you had that that thing. Uh, and people said yeah you know we 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 really like this and so it's it's full of rough edges and all the rest but there's that thing about it it is live i didn't touch a single guitar note on it it is what you hear is 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 um, is absolutely honest so um uh it was it was a great time and uh, there is that thing when a band is is trying to break through, there's that level of excitement about it. There's still that feeling of discovery within the band and and for fans who are who are getting on board slowly.
1: So so as you get into the recording of and I'll just call it England and and of course yeah. land that comes after yeah. Do you go back to some of these board tapes and listen to them and study them and say, what are we doing here? And like, was there any kind of conscious effort to reproduce yourself live in studio or not at all? Uh,
4: well, I think that, um, as I say, um, th- things were done in, in, the, in the rehearsal room in those days. We, we rehearsed. And then we took it out on the road. Or sometimes we even took things out on the road first of all, and then we recorded it. I mean, songs such as uh, Musical Box from from Nursery Crime was played live lots of times before it was recorded. So it had a chance to develop. Uh, you don't always get the chance to do that every time, of
1: course. Just quickly here before I, I, I forget, because yesterday, even though folks are going to hear this in a couple of weeks, was the anniversary of The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. It came out 18th of yeah. November, 1974. Um, yep. Just take me back to that album. And so selling does well. It gets on the charts your first charting album there's obviously some probably some new pressures from record companies and and then the band probably wants to say hey we've done this now let's go do this and move that to the next level um talk to me about the about lamb and and going into those recording sessions and and how was that for the band in terms of uh you know pressure but just also musical uh, you know adventuring if you want
4: uh, well, you know, the band was gl- growing up at, at that point and uh, um, uh, Peter's wife was expecting um, a child and uh, I think things were not going terribly well for him in, in terms of that. Uh, I think it was a difficult um, uh, difficult birth, difficult pregnancy. And um, so he had pressures. Phil had... Phil suddenly had a family. Um, We were all, you know, starting to become parents. And, um, and so it's not just a case of, of going off and isolating yourself in the country. If you isolated yourself, as we were still trying to do, it was, it was a halfway house between, you know, the band ethos at one time, young guys, no attachments and uh, suddenly extra responsibilities. So, um, Um, at the time, Peter was being courted by William Freakin, who was riding high with the exorcist and wanted Pete to write a, a screenplay for him, not realizing that Pete was about to ditch Genesis and go and do nothing but film at that point. And, um, uh, so we had a difficult time where we didn't really know if we had a singer or not. He left and then he rejoined and then he said he would, um, he would do the album, which became a double album um, and he would um, fulfill all the all the touring commitments and the touring commitments lasted nine months. We were on the road nine months almost continuously so um, you know people used to say to me afterwards uh, uh, yeah yeah you 're looking beautiful, but green, and uh, that 's what happens when you 're on the road for nine months or or a whole year. Uh, people start to take on um, an extraordinary pallor. If, if, you, if you're young enough to still be, uh, yeah, young, pale, and interesting, uh, that's exactly what was going on. But um, um, it's not great for the health. It's obviously great for fans who are used to the idea of, you know, you, you show up and it's going to be in your hometown as well. Um, so all of us who are still. You know touring uh, um, like crazy as i 'm as i 'm doing one hundred and sixty shows next year so far and and the date sheet is being added to um, you know that's all that 's all marvelous, but in between, of course, talking about the lamb we did this double album, first of all, it was going to be a single and and then you know pete said um, look i 've got a concept for it, I want to write all all the lyrics and this was the first time, and it really was a case of the price of continuing or the, you know, the price of, of admission. Uh, I think that that Pete was headed more towards a solo career. And I, I respected that, you know, the fact that, um, he felt that that's what he needed to do. He needed to sing his own words and was coming, becoming much less of a team player. Uh, whereas I felt that in, in a way selling England by the pound, um, there were lots of guitar on it that i really uh, adored but i i think um uh by the time we were doing uh lamb lies down um in a sense there was a competition between on one hand Pete and, and tony on the other you know tony coming up with things that were you know very florid and very clever um uh keyboard parts uh, that then you know Pete was singing over the top of and so you had that clash of uh of wills going on and the rest of us trying to provide the glue having said that i think there are you know great moments on the uh on the land, you know such as fly on a windshield and um and the title track and, and many other things but um but it, by by comparison it seemed as if um selling england if that was the immaculate conception then i think um lamb lies down was a breach birth that came out screaming
1: it came out screaming. Now, um, oh, yeah. so uh, let me. I'll, I want to get it a little bit into the future here, or or in fact, me, the present day. Yeah. Um, on January twenty fifth, two thousand nineteen, you are of course releasing at the edge of light. Um, yeah. I of course haven't heard the album at at the moment of this recording. So, what can fans expect with this new solo album? And and you know, you're you're talking about doing these um, Genesis Revisited show and and doing 160 shows. What keeps you going? Why not just say, listen, I'm just going to do Selling England for the next three years and and not? Why the need to make new music? And and tell the fans, what can we expect on this one?
4: Well, I I think that, you know, in a sense, it's two bands in one. There's the Genesis aspect, and uh, it's a bit like Genesis The Next Generation um, but at the same time, uh, there's new stuff and um, the, the solo albums that I've been doing in recent years have been charting higher and higher. So there's a sense of catching up going on. And I love to do new stuff and I feel the albums are getting better. Uh, there's multicultural diversity there. Um, there's... Um, there's a sense of global music about it. It's it attempts to be comprehensive. Um there's a lot of orchestra on it. There's choral stuff, there's gospel, um, there's country, there's blues, there's all sorts of things on it. And um I think it's the biggest and and perhaps the best produced album I've I've ever done. So, um uh it's music from Azerbaijan, it's from Hungary, it's from Iceland it's from the uk from the united states it's it's a band but it's an enlarged band um um and and there there are are global players on it um yeah. and of course when i do stuff live i have um uh two guys from sweden in the band so you know it's very it's very important especially at at this time when uh, nationalism seems to be rearing its ugly head um, as an answer to the world's problems, um, I think globalization and, and and diversity and the chance for music uh, to be all-inclusive, um, in a sense, you've got the technology for this to happen. People can work together. Politicians may try and redraw the map and you can try and keep people out and all that kind of stuff, but that's not what musicians do. Uh, musicians don't respect borders uh, music flies across borders. It's there's cross pollination. Um, I think right from the days of the Beatles working and the beginnings of, of world music, the, the 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 era of inviting in India. Suddenly, everywhere is mainstream. Everywhere is in with a chance. And um, there's no such thing as as obscurity. There's there's certainly no master race marching through. Um, the idea of of compassionate songs that give other people a chance this, this is the legacy of the Beatles and I think the rest of us have to live up to that and i 've also noticed that I was in two different shops in London, for instance, and um, it 's the end of you know the armistice, the end of the first world war being celebrated at the moment with this marvelous film footage restored yep. by peter Tia- Peter jackson and uh, you know which took him five years and the extraordinary thing is in two separate shops they 're playing Dylan stuff and it's protest songs all over again, you're hearing blowing in the wind and and all of that and, and the sense of the protest song being apropos. Um as I say, the more we have the rise of the right and uh the more people start saying, Oh, well maybe Mussolini needs a a, a reappraisal uh the rest of us, you know, hold up our hands in horror and say, Wait a minute, you know, um dictatorship cannot be a good thing the hard-won freedoms of uh, the civil rights movement and everything we fought for in um, in the 60s the marches we went on all of that stuff um uh, it's it's very easy for the world to slide um and it is. Uh, we don't want to go back to the days of shootings on campus you know just for raising uh, the, the the voice of of healthy dissent uh so yeah You know, uh, what I do musically um, touches on this at times. Um, uh, I do have things which are symbolic. Um, I try not to be overtly didactic about it, but, you know, the songs do have that. The opening song is called uh, Fallen Walls and, and Pedestals. The second song is called Beasts in Our Time, which, in a way, is a Parody of of peace in our time. That the Neville Chamberlain piece of paper that was uh, worth not- nothing. The the bankrupt check. You know uh, the check bounced immediately. Um, so um, yeah, you know it's it's a very it's a very tricky time as as England uh, tries to pull out of Europe and uh, um, we face being cut off without medical supplies, without food, um, without without an agreement, without anything and politicians seem to be irresponsibly headed towards this kind of precipice. And it's just symptomatic of what's going on in the world. So I'm having my rant here. But if you're living in the thick of it, as we are here, the rest of the world is going, why is England doing this? You know, didn't England have an empire at one time? I mean, not that it was a great thing, but uh, we don't seem to be able to, you know, deal with our... With our near neighbours, it seems you know. Scotland is talking about declaring independence. Ireland, you know, is potentially going to be in, in chaos again if there's a hard border drawn. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's an extraordinary time. So, uh, I think you know what I do musically. You ask me why I'm doing music now. It's to address all of those issues and say, look, we can work together. We can be pals. This is what it's all about.
1: Yeah, and I have to say from the Canadian perspective, obviously we've heard all about Brexit a million times, but what yeah. I what I missed in all of that conversation, and maybe I should go research it, is why did that even become a question? Like, why did you wake up someday and say, yeah, we need to separate? I mean… The pound was was doing good. You were leaders on a world stage. Uh, yep. You know, when the Americans needed something, we, they came to England, and, and 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 you have peace in Ireland because we remember the IRA in Northern Ireland. I mean, that was sure. just
4: awful. That's right.
1: So, That's right.
4: So, so and, <laughs> but you're absolutely you're absolutely right. And I didn't vote for Brexit. There's no international musician who will vote for Brexit. Um, uh, you know we 're all registering our, our protest and we 're going on the marches again that 's what 's happening uh, but at the same time uh, in the civil unrest that 's going to follow this um, is extraordinary it 's extraordinarily damaging for for our, our economy here because um, uh, you know they can 't get the, the staff uh, for the national health service, which was you know the real pride and joy of England the fact that you could get three free, free Healthcare, uh, but you know we're dependent on on our on our on our neighbours to fulfil those posts. English people don't want to do it, so um, nobody knows really what's going to happen. But I, I think the rest of the world is laughing at us, saying, you know, stupid English. You know, I mean,
1: well, how I'm, can it? Make I'm it confused works? by it. Uh, they always say yeah. strength in numbers, and I'm like, oh, okay, but uh, but so
4: no, they they're talking about you know uh, taking back control and being able to control our own borders and all that. But it's It's nonsense. You know, most of the building trade is done by by Polish workers because they they work they work longer hours they're more efficient for instance. So um, and, you know, the very people that voted for Brexit are the people that like to uh, like to drink French wine and German wine and eat Italian food. And um, they forget we didn't invent the pizza, um, et cetera, et
1: cetera. So let me ask you then, other than having sort of a, a social thing to say or, or a lyrical yep. thing to say, yeah. Do, you, do you still get an excitement of coming up with a new guitar solo or having a new sound or musically, is it still like, like a kid in the candy store or do oh, you sort yeah. of go, no, I have. Oh yeah. Okay. So
4: every day. Yeah. Right. I, the, the, the candy store stays open all hours. And, um, even last night I was dreaming up melodies that, um, that I put into practice this very day. So, um, yeah, music doesn't stop when I sleep. It um it keeps speaking to me and um it's still a it's still a great time and of course we've got all this fabulous technology and um I'm I'm in a very lucky position that um you know, most musicians in the world uh, are very happy to work with me. Um I, I realise it's a very very, very um fortunate Position to be in to be able to work with people, um, pan genre right across the board. Um, it's it it's an extraordinary time, you know, for those of us who are still uh, involved in music who've had success in previous years. Um, I'm I still like a kid, yeah,
1: for sure. And and, and I'll end on this and just cause quickly, you mentioned technology. Have we gotten muses or musically or musicians too dependent on? Pro Tools and flying stuff in and flying stuff out and auto-tune. Because, you know, if you were a studio musician in the 1970s, you had to make... If it took 20 takes, it took 20 takes. Now you can sort of sure. go in, lay down one take and say, eh, we'll tool it after. Have we sort of dummied down the the, the profession or the art? Or or is it added to it by saying, yeah, but, but look at what we can do with this. We can create stuff that... <laughs>
4: Well, I, I think that's why it's important to do live albums, you know, to do something that's uh, it's a de- depiction of a live show. It's in a moment in time. Um, I think that all musicians, even classical musicians and opera singers, use the technology that's around. So the art of the edit has been with us, you know, for 100 years or so now. So I guess, you know, the clock is not going to be uh, turned back. Uh, But, you know, some albums can be more experimental and to be absolutely spontaneous. And I don't have a problem with that at all. But I I think that what people want um, from the stuff that they do, you know, they want um, a musical adventure, they want surprise and um, uh, all of that. Um, So um, it's whatever it takes to create that. And and if we track up and, and, and do all that, you know, sometimes you can afford if you're lucky, if your budget affords it, you can, you can have a symphony orchestra that's, you know, when, when the record company is generous enough to, uh, to give you the kind of advance that'll support that, uh, uh, uh yeah, go to it every time. But, but, um, um, I guess, you know, any has shown what you can do with one voice. And, um, it's the same thing that we do when we have maybe, uh, you know, one violinist who also happens to play viola and, um, and we so we we track up that 's what we do we we use the technology, so um, yeah, we can make armies of individuals and and that 's at least as exciting as as all the rest. Um, I love doing this and creating choirs um in this way so um for me it 's very exciting uh, for others, they might say yep yeah, you know it's it 's too cold it 's test tube babies, and uh, we 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 don 't want that we don 't want to clone individuals but what you have to do is cut your cloth according to your means. And if you can't afford to go out and, and hire the, the Berlin Philharmonic this week, uh, there's another way of doing it. And, and uh, your, your studio is the size of the screen that you stick in your bedroom if necessary. Um, the technology affords everything. So the main instrument has got to be the brain. The imagination is limitless and the palette of colors is absolutely enormous.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I'll just remind folks, the uh, Selling England by the Pound tour is, uh, well, I'm I'm assuming it's not just Canada. You'll be doing a lot more than that, but it is coming to Montreal and stuff. And uh, very much looking forward to it, and always, always a great pleasure uh, talking with you.
4: Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, and uh, we will see you in uh, 2019. Merci beaucoup, as we say. Thank you. Cheers. Merci beaucoup. Cheers. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Hey, this is Frank Hannon, Tesla's lead guitarist. Be sure to visit my website, frankhannon.com, to check out my latest solo album. And keep on listening to Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond.
1: Crank it up.
3: Now back to Rock
1: Talk with Mitch LaFond. There you go, folks. My interview with Steve Hackett. A big thank you to him for that. And... Yes, we are going to go a little bit extra long. I know it's the holidays and a few people have some time off. And so why not listen to your favorite podcast a little bit longer? There you go. Uh, Mitch Ryder, of course, uh, has a new or Christmas album. And yes, I know it's after Christmas, but it's called Christmas Take a Ride. But the good thing is is that the interview is not focused entirely on the Christmas album. We do talk about his career, about the the wheels, about all all that other stuff. And uh, there you go. But uh, Mr. Niven.
2: Well, I don't know how it is in your household, but at this time of year, I have to go and find all the Christmas albums because the wife says I want Christmas music. So, We may have been just a little bit behind the eight ball with Mitch Ryder's Christmas release. Our apologies, dude. But Christmas comes every year, and it's a good record. Go and buy it. Put it in with the Christmas albums. And for God's sake, put it on before you put Mariah Carey
1: on. Yes, and I do agree. And, of course, it has all, you know, Blue Christmas, Santa Claus. But just real quick, my favorite Christmas album – it's not a Christmas album. My favorite Christmas album, and I do have one – is the Billy Idol Christmas album. Now, Billy Idol himself, from what I'm told, personally hates it and does not want to talk about it, does not want to make it available for for sale. But if you go to eBay and Discogs and whatever, you can find it online. But I think it is absolutely tongue-in-cheek wonderful. And if you haven't heard that, go get that. But also, this Mitch Ryder album, I did have a chance to hear it before the interview, and it is exactly what you expect. High quality because Mitch is an incredible talent, and he's got a fantastic first name, right? Alan. And and,
2: and he's played with some great guitar players as well. Yes. I mean, you know, he's had his fame in his own right, but uh, I may be not remembering correctly, but did he not play with Steve Hunter?
1: I do believe. I do believe he has. And, of course, Steve has done stuff on Aerosmith albums. As a ghost has done stuff with lou reed has done stuff with um and well, that's hold
2: up right there yes steve hunter is partially re- responsible for one of the sublime rock and roll guitar moments of all time which is the intro to sweet jane on the lou reed live record and it is stunning it's a total standout piece of playing it's a total standout in terms of its tone and its attitude there's nothing christmas about it at all my friend uh, it is just wonderful and you know sweet jane intro is a, what i call a guitarscape and oh. you and i could talk about guitarscapes until new year's eve but you know we could take an easy step Backwards from from the intro to Sweet Jane, and start talking about Nantucket Sleigh Ride with Leslie West, which is 17 minutes of wonderful guitar playing, and that kind of makes a neat little Christmas bow on our mm-hmm. cast for this week. Because did we, did we not come in with Peter from Peter Frampton yep. and the Guitar Scape of Gilded Splinters on, and everybody calls it. Live at the Fillmore, and they never call it performance, and they never confuse it with the Mick Jagger movie. But we've had a pretty good guitar scape for yeah,
1: Christmas, an absolute guitar fest this time. And and just real quick on Steve Hunter, um, for me, it's when you hear him doing that that trade off on Aerosmith's uh, "Train Kept A Rolling" on "Get Your Wings." For years, everybody said, "Oh, Brad and Joe did a great job." Turns out it's Dick Wagner and Steve Hunter that did the, those solos and that that work. And of course, "Welcome to My Nightmare" remains my favorite Alice Cooper album. And their work on that, Dick, Dick and Steve. I mean, they they had a pocket together. They
2: amazing,
1: um, amazing.
2: Yeah. On Our train kept kept a rolling. Here's a confessional, um, and we'll put it in a Christmas Christmas uh, context. Uh, not that I would ever drink the stuff; it's disgusting. But if I might have had an eggnog too many, Train Captain Rolling has always been one of those go-to tracks that you put on at three o'clock in the morning and make damn sure the neighbors hear it.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So let's so let's 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 get to Mitch and let's hear Mitch. So without further ado, and to end this extended holiday edition of Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon here on Westwood One, it is the one. The only, Mitch Ryder. We are speaking with Mitch Ryder. The new album is Christmas Take a Ride. And uh, Mitch, absolute uh, pleasure to talk to you and just a Christmas album. Let's uh, let's let's dig into that. How did you come about uh, after all these years of being in the business, going all the way back to the 60s, say, hey, you know what? The one thing I haven't done yet is a Christmas album.
0: Yeah, I I get what you're saying, but it wasn't like a bucket list thing. It was, however, um, something that I was curious, asking myself, why haven't you done this? And when the opportunity presented itself via Cleopatra Records, I kind of jumped at the chance. So, you know, I, I wasn't sitting at home saying, everybody's got a Christmas album out but me. That really didn't bother me that much. But then the opportunity came because I wasn't about to go and spring $50,000 in a studio making a Christmas album. That wasn't going to be my goal. But this this opportunity came and I took it. And so they've been very nice about it. And uh, the recording, my my parts of the recording were done in Austin, Texas. And I had a really cool producer. But the tracks themselves are pretty much traditional um, arrangements. And so if I were to do an album of my creation, I would do, I would stray from the traditional arrangements and go more into an R&B type mode or something like that. But it's cool enough the way it is, you know, and, and the band, of, of course, is excellent. So I'm I'm happy with the project and I'm excited to have my very first Christmas album.
1: Now, is that something that, at some point, you want to get out on the road and start touring and start, uh, you know, bringing... Behind the Christmas album? Yeah, just <laughs> no. a, you know, a few Christmas a few Christmas shows and, and get a few people into that mirthful kind of... No.
0: No, Christmas is kind of a sacred thing in my family. Okay. And uh, that's the kind of time of the year where you just want to stay off the road if you can.
1: Which, of course, makes so, sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, the only thing I do in the wintertime is I do my annual... Tour of Europe, and that that comes every year as it has for since 1979. I've worked very hard at building up a loyal following. I've been very loyal to my fans there, and so I go every year, uh, February and March of every year. I go to Europe. But that's not a Christmas show.
1: No, it's not a Christmas. So, so let me talk about that because you know we, we look back in the history and we, we we talk about that that John Cougar Mellencamp or that John Mellencamp produced album way back in '83, and. There has been this, this, or at least my perception, a focus on the European market and, and a great reception from the European market. Um, what is it about sort of that part of the world that just gets Mitch Ryder and that you need to go back year after year, like you just said, and just visit and, and play for these fans? I think
0: conceptually, uh, they didn't birth rock and roll. It's not native to them, and so the curiosity factor of such a potent uh, means of making music is is very attractive to Europeans. In fact, you can break it down by territories almost uh, for rock and roll, you could always include England, but Germany's not far behind them. In Germany for rock and roll is basically what France was to jazz. It's a, really a safe it's a safe harbor, and they love it. They've they've done a lot of uh, studying in it. Uh, I mentioned Germany because that's primarily where I tour, but I have toured on those tours all over Europe, everywhere. Name a country I've been there, but I think uh, Germany is that way. And about Mitch Ryder, I think they needed an artist of of my my persuasion and my credentials and my understanding of music. That they could kind of adopt and call their own. Uh, I wasn't. I was becoming very rapidly uh, a has-been artist here in America, doing all, and I still do the classic rock shows, formerly called the Legend shows, formerly called the Oldie shows. And over there, I am uh, pretty much a contemporary artist. Uh, I put out records uh, and, and music uh, every now, everything out to be about every two years. Uh, Since I've been over there, I've released 21 uh, CDs, Uh, five of those which are are live performances because they're really dynamic. The live performances are very dynamic. But uh, all that studio material that I've I've gotten together, which brings my total of CDs up to 33. So I've not been uh, sitting idle uh, in in the uh, latter years of my, my very long career.
1: So, so let's talk about the releases because a lot of them come out on seeds and stem records. Talk to me about setting up a label and why was it necessary, and also what are some of the benefits of having your own label so that you can control, you know, the the production and when they come out, and just have sort of this this great overview of it.
0: Well, that was the attractive part for me in the beginning. That was one of the reasons we created our own label me and my partner, Tom Connor. We did that because I had come out of a situation where I was pretty much beat up and kicked around pretty good by the industry. Now, I'm I'm not indicting the entire industry. There's so many wonderful people in the music industry. But I somehow am attracted to the criminal element, and that's where I found myself. And it was a very bruising experience. And when I... I didn't even want to get back into music for a brief moment. I went and lived in Colorado, and I was, my, my intention was to leave music. When I got out there, I found myself missing it so much that I formed a band when I was living in Colorado, and we would play, but we wouldn't play high-profile gigs or even public gigs, really. We did a lot of charity things. We played in the prisons there. Uh, We did those kind of really under-the-radar gigs, but I needed to do that because I hungered to stay into music, but I didn't want to do it on New York's terms or L.A.'s terms. I wanted to do it on my terms. So when I did get enough um, under my belt to warrant coming back to the industry, I didn't go to New York or L.A. I went to Detroit, and that's where I founded my record label. Now, it is wonderful because you do get to control everything, and that was my intention, too was to control everything from liner notes to the music to the credits uh, to the photographs to the cover work, every facet of it. That also included the marketing of it. And when I discovered what it takes to market a record, now, mind you, this is way before social media and the technological breakthroughs that we have now and the means and ways that we have of reaching an audience these days. We didn't have that back then so it was a very very interesting game and you had to to acclimate yourself to the to the temperature of that business at that time we had to get for example we couldn't get national distribution in america so what we did we went region by region and there were plenty of people that that covered those regions we had five different distributors just for the us that in itself wasn't really a problem it was a pain in the butt but it wasn't a real problem the problem began when we were trying to get cash flow, because all of their accounting periods were different. So when we tried to plan a project and we needed a cash flow, we couldn't count on all of the money we were owed coming in at the same time. and it just became a real bother in terms of, of nurturing the label. Uh, we, we did manage to get out a, a blues album, a jazz album, a country and western album, but that was the end, and two albums by me. Uh, that was pretty much the end of it, though. Because it was just too difficult to to manage the uh, the funding of the label, uh, you know you have to hire a PR, you have to or there's all just all kinds of deals in running your own label, and that was different, way different from it was say from Barry Gordy running Motown, which I was around for that. Uh, I hadn't become professional yet at that point, but I was around for that, and he had a very sweet thing going because he was like. The, the new kid on the block in terms of Detroit's uh, uh, sensibilities. <laughs> but that didn't exist by the time I got around to making mine. And what it ended up being was pretty much me being a dick and me saying, well, I'm going to have it my way uh, when it was impossible for me to have it my way. I guess that answers your question about the label.
1: It does. and And so for because you know the music industry has changed streaming has has started to take over if you were to advise a young band getting into this business and and getting you know because back in the day we did the album tour cycle you put an album out and the record company would help pay for the tours what would be your advice for a band now coming into it is is it start your own label and 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 then just sort of get it to Spotify or is it eh, yeah, yeah
0: well that's very easy to do right. You have to have some core beliefs if you're going to jump into that arena. Uh, you have to love people almost as much as you love your music. That's number one. And you, you, you really have to have a sense of what the technology that's available to you is and what it can do. And thirdly, without question, get a good lawyer, because that's where we find ourselves as a democracy and as a capitalist state. Uh, it, it's all about money. Protecting the money and enter the lawyers at that point. Now, if that's the kind of success you want, if you just want to get known, you don't even have to make music to get known. I saw some guy the other day; he's got three million followers, and he doesn't do anything but sit home and, and text people and, and you know post stuff. So I, I don't know. What are you going to use them for? What do you what do you want them for? Uh, I just know that it's going to be those those three items that I mentioned. I think are the most important. And the most important one is to love people as much as you love your music because if you don't care what people think, then you don't even, you you could go home and make music just for you and your wife or you and your kids, you know, and that should satisfy you if if music is what you truly love. But if you want to get fans and a following, then I really do believe that
1: you've got to love people. Yeah, you really do. Um, Years ago, Uh, much has been made about this this move out to Colorado where you sort of I don't know if the word has become a recluse but you you sort of stepped aside from 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 the music business looking back on those days were you sort of done with the music business and you just wanted to unplug and don't bother me again and sort of what changed your mind after having spent a few years there?
0: I arrived there my spirit had been totally broken Um, I I didn't have a soul uh, S-O-U-L and I, I never really was a recluse in that I never stopped thinking about music I wrote a lot of songs while I was out there in fact most of the songs on my comeback album How I Spent My Vacation were written in Colorado along with the artwork The oil paintings that appeared on the first two albums on my label were original oils that I created while I was in Colorado. So it was a very, I did work, I had to work a day job to get money to buy canvas and oils and paper and guitar strings and all the stuff that I needed to create. But I had to get a day job to fund that. Uh, And I didn't find that to be a bother. Uh, the, The work, the physical labor work that I was doing was menial. Uh, anybody could have done it in fact the guy that replaced me in the warehouse couldn't speak English actually he spoke uh, Spanish I never been to music but like I said it was a time to to, to say recharge your batteries is to diminish the importance of it I needed to reawaken my spiritual self and I was able to accomplish that, because there's one thing about Colorado, in uh, Denver specifically, there is uh, sort of a, a, a very intense power at work there. And you get up into those mountains and look down on that city, and you, you get closer to God if that's what you're you're wanting to do. Right. You also get closer to some very good perch and salmon and uh, a lot of other fish up in those lakes not so much the salmon because those, those rivers are that's where you get your best salmon is in the rivers but the perch and, and the trout boy those isolated lakes up there oh my god i never knew you could get that those beautiful fish that way and we would uh we would uh dress them on the spot and we'd have fish cooks out cookouts on the why
1: don't we talk about fishing? Damn. See, <laughs> well, my well, well, so well, because we're, we were talking about also the the, the album. So let, let me just get to that to that album there. How I spent my vacation. You, you know, it's it's I guess forty years old this year, right? When you when you look back on it. Do you, do you do you do you see jubilation do you feel pain is it just cathartic is it just listen it's just a collection of songs dude it's it's just another bunch of you know like how do you look back on it now 40 years later Did, is there any kind of emotional connection to it beyond just hey i've got a a great collection of songs like do you feel like yeah that really was a rebirth that one
0: no it was it was a revolutionary for me because it was a, i felt that I was making the change from being Bob Cruz's talented singer to becoming a self-contained artist. I put that much value on that attempt, uh, and I think I accomplished that. I think as a comeback album goes, and I think somebody, there was a writer in Rolling Stone at the time that said just as much, uh, was uh, very important to my career and will always stand as one of the most important, pivotal moments in my life, because not only was the music uh, declared safe, but my, my life, my career was declared safe at that point. Up until that time, I had refused to even work in America. So it was a strange set of affairs. It was a very complex story, too, but... You know, if, if anybody read my book, um, right. an award-winning book, I have to say, right. uh, "Devils in Blue Dresses." The whole journey is captured and captured very well. Uh, I would recommend that for anybody that really wants to get detailed about that that journey. I got an Ippy Award for that, gold medal Ippy. I don't know if you're into writing, but that's kind of like, in terms of um, independent publishing, that's like one of the big guys.
1: Yeah, in so, fact, yeah. That, that was going to be the, the question that, that I was sort of setting you up for that. Uh, you, you do, of course, put out uh, Devils in the Blue Dress as my wild ride as a rock and roll legend. Uh, talk to me about the process of writing a book, because it, it is it does sort of strip the story bare. It does sort of, you know, it opens some wounds and closes some wounds and explains some things and and and, and you know, casts light on others. Was that. First of all, was that a book that you wrote entirely by yourself or is it one of these where you had a couple of ghostwriters helping you out? And and what was the process like of of getting those thoughts and feelings and emotion on paper and saying, yeah, I, I'm going to share this with my fans. And yes, this story might be this or it might be painful, or but I've got to get it out there.
0: I wrote that entirely by myself. And in terms of what that process was, it depends on which year we would pick, because I worked in that for three and a half years. And I did two drafts before the final one that was submitted for the book that finally came out. Um, My method method of working, I I had gotten my very first good computer. I would had computers prior to that. So because of the ease of being able to commit something other than by longhand or a typewriter uh, and the, the, the ability to recall and capture things and move them around on a screen for storage here and there instead of finding boxes to put papers in, the whole thing was so streamlined that it didn't seem like a chore any longer. It just seemed like an easy way to get to where I wanted to go. So I was having fun with the computer, and that allowed me the time, because of the fun quotient, that allowed me the time to actually think a little deeper on any given subject. So when I finally did commit to a thought that had to be printed, it was well-rehearsed and well-vetted, and so I knew going in that I wouldn't be changing a lot, but whatever I was going to commit to, I had to live with. And so it was a pretty uh, interesting thing. I really didn't read it from top to bottom more than two times before I submitted it. Wow. I, had that much, I had that much faith in it. Uh, I knew the process. I knew what it had taken from me and what I had given. And so I was very comfortable with that. And I had no fear. Uh, I, I didn't have great expectations either. So that always helps. If you're not looking to hit a home run, but you get one by accident, you'll take it, right? Yeah, of course. Oh, there you
1: go. Of course, right. uh, um, I I do want to ask you about about that 1983 album, Never Kick Never Kick a Sleeping Dog, uh, that you did with John Mellencamp or John Cougar or John Cougar Mellencamp, whatever he was calling himself at that time. He, of course, you know, had American Fool in '82. He had you know the big songs and he was all over radio. What was the process like getting you two together and then getting him? to produce you because it's one thing to be a pop star and and have Jack and Diane on the radio but it's very different getting an artist in the studio. Did he try to make a John Cougar album via Mitch Ryder or did he come in saying, "Listen, I I love what you did with uh you know, the Detroit Wheels and stuff." What was that like and how did that pairing come to be? Yeah. Yeah. The first one first. Yeah. Um,
0: he, he wasn't trying to make a, a John Mellencamp album. Uh, he was uh, actually trying to be a good producer to the artist he had chosen. Uh, I don't think he recognized the fact that some of those guitar licks and the, the, the drum beats and the tempos were more John Mellencampy than they were Mitch Ryder. I don't think he realized that but it wasn't so overbearing that i couldn't perform well in in those circumstances and we had some disagreements along the way uh i'm quoted as saying we fought like cats and dogs and, and that's all true but you know look at the result it's a it's a good solid album and another one that i can be proud of it's right up there with how i spent my vacation uh never kick a sleeping dog but there's it doesn't quite reach the bar that was set when I, I did my, my uh, breakthrough album in Europe, which was called Rite of Passage. Those are three of the uh, landmarks that I use to, to find my way uh, through life, my musical life. Those are three prominent uh, efforts, all of them done well, and uh, very uh, informative in terms of uh, finding out who your artist is and what he's about musically. Uh, The second question was, how did it happen? Well, John was on a publicity tour, and uh, a friend of mine, Jerry Lubin, was on the underground radio or the legendary underground radio station uh, here in in Detroit. I'm not in Detroit anymore. I'm in Georgia. Apparently, I can't forget Detroit. (laughs) It's always on my mind. So John was touring up there and, and promoting, and... Jerry was working at this very hip, diminishing value in hipness, but hip nonetheless. And he was the jock. He was the radio personality when John came through. And John was sitting there being interviewed by Jerry. And Jerry was a good friend of mine. We went through that whole late 60s, early 70s hippie thing together. And uh, so Jerry kept a big poster of me behind his desk Uh, behind his uh, broadcasting table up on the wall in the studio. And John was doing the interview, and John noticed uh, my picture, and he said, oh, you like Mitch Ryder? And and Jerry said, yeah, I love Mitch Ryder. Uh, What do you think of Mitch Ryder? And then John went on to state that I was one of his heroes and blah, 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 blah. And he said, I wish I could get a hold of him, right? Right. Well, so he didn't know that Jerry knew how to get a hold of me. So Jerry, sensing an opportunity for me, said, well, do you really want to talk to him? And John goes, yeah. And he said, well, I can, I can get you right now. I can up with him. And so John was kind of stuck into the communication thing right there. Uh, he didn't commit to making an album at that point, but he did state how very important I was in his life. So he got kind of trapped into calling me. That's the high point. That's that's the upside of it. The only thing about that, that being picked by John Mellencamp, and it may have been true what I'm about to say, but there was no reason for him to have to tell me that. But he did make a point of telling me that I was one of five different artists that he was thinking about doing, and he went on to name those artists. And I just thought that was kind of weird, and it didn't sit well with me. Um, but, you know, we had a lot of bumps on that road, and we ended up happy and smiling at the end, and uh, we haven't spoken to each other since. So, <laughs>
1: how do you like that? <laughs> well, you know, hey, listen, stuff happens. And uh, just before uh, just before we, we wrap up here, I have, I have been a huge, huge, huge Alice Cooper fan my entire life. And, of course... Johnny B. A band a Bandinjanek. I've always said that name a little bit off, but Johnny B. was, of course, part of the Detroit um, Wheels, Wheel. and and of course, part of Alice Cooper's band in the late '70s. Just just for my own edification, what was he like as a drummer, and what did he bring to the band? And and is is it somebody that you still sort of keep in contact with? Because I've just you know I I I, I dig anything Alice Cooper. Hmm.
0: Well, Vinnie is, a, is quite a guy. Uh, he he camped in the Detroit area for a while. Uh, it was quite the rock and roll scene uh, for a period of time in the national consciousness. Uh, Johnny B, you referred to him as he was this, he was it He's not a was; he is an is. He is, yeah. He's, he still is one of the most powerful drummers. Even at his advanced age, uh, he can he can cut wood. One drumstick. He's just remarkable. Uh, I, I have nothing at all bad to say about his talent. Nothing at all. And uh, he deserves any any credits he can get. Um, we don't speak that much. Now, Jim McCarty was our guitar player. If you had to look at that band in terms of talent, Jimmy and Johnny were the two most prominent of the group, of the backup group. Um, I fell into that thing. I had a solo career going into my, my relationship with those guys. So I kind of had uh, a sense of self. And uh, I never allowed it to integrate us. Uh, and I think there was some resentment over that because there was a time the Beatles were popular, the Rolling Stones were popular, the Kings were popular, and uh, Jimmy wanted to keep it a small group. I had been schooled and brought up on uh, Rhythm and & Blues, and I wanted to keep the band. That's what people don't understand. I wanted to keep the, the core. I just wanted to add some horns, and uh, Jimmy didn't want horns. So that was the primary reason for us not to get along. Having said that, Jimmy and I have performed uh, together quite a, quite a few times since that uh, that breakup so many, many years ago, many decades ago. I think most recently was just a couple years ago in Detroit for a little deal that Don Woods puts on there called Concert of Colors. So it's not all bad, but, um, you know, things happen, and and you have reasons for not wanting to go back and milk that cow. Um, Those were great years. Uh, I can't say there wouldn't be a Mitch Ryder without those years, because I was determined to make it one way or another, and whether my name was Mitch Ryder or, or you know, Billy Bobchick, so it doesn't matter. I was going to make it, but I am Mitch Ryder because of those years with them, and uh, that's great. That's great, and, and I'll cherish the, those three years out of my 53-year career were very important. Uh, I can't stress that enough, but. They may, have, um, they may have educated me apparently not because I kept falling in the same trap but they didn't nourish me uh, and they didn't feed my soul as an artist those years in New York with Bob Crew and unfortunately the boys Jimmy, Johnny, Earl and, and-, and Joey um, I don't know why or and how they can invest so much of their identification with those three years. Because clearly, they've all moved on to other things, other accomplishments. that were bigger than Mitch Ryder and Detroit Wheels could ever be. So, I just, the whole friction that really doesn't exist for me, and I don't think should exist for them, is is... It's a losing proposition to hold on to that that, that sort of. Uh, I'm yeah. not going to call it hatred either. That wouldn't be a correct word. I don't know what's really keeping us from ever doing anything together again. Maybe just that somebody never mentioned it. I
1: don't yeah, know. maybe. I mean, it it's it, it is disappointing that there's not something again because though those years and those songs, I mean, you just you just look at the Billboard charts. People were were all over it. Uh, And, you know, here we are 50 years later, and it's still a conversation, and it's still a relevant conversation on top of that. So, you know, but uh, let's quickly remind the folks that Mitch Ryder has a new album, Christmas, Take a Ride. Uh, You've got Sylvan Sylvan of the New York Dolls on there, and uh, Walter Lure of Johnny Thunder and the Heartbreakers, Joe Joe Louis Walker, and more. And just uh, an absolute pleasure, Mitch. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for your time today. You're very welcome, and thank you for calling. Absolutely. Cheers now. Yep. Happy holidays. You too now. Bye-bye.
3: From the Westwood One Podcast Network.